This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster and I slightly have a cold, but that's not stopping me from sharing this episode with you today. It's an author chat with author Emran El-Badawi. So his book, Queens and Prophets, How Arabian Noblewomen and Holy Men Shaped Paganism, Christianity, and Islam, has just just come out. You can purchase this wherever you get your books from. It's such an interesting read, and I loved this chat that I had with him where we talk about his work and his research and how to even go about researching things from that long ago and what, where was ancient Arabia? What were the years and what geographically, where is it? Anyway, I hope you really enjoy this chat because I really enjoyed having this chat um, with Emran El-Badawi. Okay, so I'm joined today by Emran El-Badawi. Welcome. Uh, we're here to talk about your book that is just just coming out. Can you please tell us first uh, about yourself and your work? Good afternoon, Annabelle. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yes. So as you mentioned, my name is Armand Badawi. I am uh, chair of the Department of Modern and Classical Languages at the University of Houston in Texas, in the United States. I'm also director of Middle Eastern Studies and the co-founder of the International Quranic Studies Association. And uh, my areas of research are uh, typically the Quran and late antique Arabia, including you know, Quran and Bible, uh, post-biblical literature, especially in Syriac, um, and even classical Islam and, and you know, classical Arabic and Islamic literature uh, written, of course, in Arabic. And I also have a secondary interest in uh, modernity in the Arab world, looking at issues of liberalism, gender, sustainability. So, And I consider myself a citizen of the world. So there you go. So what era are, you, are we talking about here? Yeah, so this book, uh, Queens and Prophets, my most recent one, uh, looks at late antique Arabia. So in terms of time, you're looking at roughly the second to seventh century. Uh, late antiquity, of course, is a term that's coined by Peter Brown and other sort of uh, historians that have really given us this gift of looking at history in this way. Uh, it's the time when sort of Rome and Persia are sort of tearing each other apart and uh, before the rise of Islam. So it sort of falls through the cracks typically. Um, so this this period of late antiquity in Arabia is incredibly interesting. And uh, when I refer to Arabia, so if I could talk about geography for a minute, it includes what we would what we would say is uh, greater Syria, including uh, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and uh, the Arabian Peninsula, including the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Councils, you know, Saudi Arabia, the 
Arabian Gulf cities, I'm sorry, states. Uh, and then, it, of course, the book itself touches upon the history and geography of other neighboring Near Eastern and even European Mediterranean uh, provinces and countries like Egypt, Iran, uh, Ethiopia, Turkey, and, and even Balkan Europe. So I'm hoping that the book is uh, relatively comprehensive in its approach. Yeah, well, it was interesting. I really wanted you to clarify that right off the bat in this podcast, because these are some of the oldest civilizations on Earth, right? Like this area, there's so much history in like everything you were just describing, Syria and Egypt and that whole area. And so we know what those countries are called now, but the the period of time you're talking about. So you mentioned the Persians, for instance. So you're looking at a, numerous different dynasties, um, certainly different cultures, ethnicities, religions, but it, they're all, you can phrase it as just sort of ancient Arabia and that encompasses everything that you're talking about. Yeah. So this is a very interesting question and it's, it's, it's part of an ongoing debate among scholars and it's not resolved. So what I try to do, of course, uh, you you have the book, so you'll know at least through exposure that in the first chapter, um, I try to argue what is uh, Arabian society. It's a term that I need to define. I also talk about terms like Arab, Saracen, and Ishmaelite. So um, by all means, when I say Arabia or Arabian society, we're not talking about necessarily one, you know, ethnic group or haplogroup or even one language or one religion. Um, but what I'm arguing, of course, and it's not just me, I'm building on earlier scholarship, that over the course of late antiquity, the people of what I define as Arabian society, this conglomeration of empires and trade networks and, you know, warring clans and tribes, that they come together into a, com a complex of Arabic language and culture. And that takes place prior to Islam. There is a contiguous perpetuated through history, an, an entity that we can call Arabia. You can sort of hold it with your hands. I say that because this is something that is vehemently argued against by a lot of hyper-revisionist, hyper-skeptical uh, uh, colleagues of mine, you know, who argue that there is no Arabia prior to Islam. And in fact, there may not even be any Arabia prior to the Abbasid dynasty, which ruled roughly 750 till uh, about 1250 or 1258 with the, with the in, influx of the Mongols. And that to me is a, an untenable position for so many reasons. And it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. This book is, it's about, it's about female power in pre-Islamic Arabia, but it's also about Arabia, period. So, I mean, that brings us beautifully to how you came to write this book. You talk about it, I think it's in the introduction of the book that not on purpose, I think is how you say it's kind of an accident you came upon this topic. Can you explain about how that happened? Yes, of course. So um, I wrote this book by accident. And it sounds, I know, a little bit maybe quaint and uh, maybe a, a flippant comment, but it's not meant to be. It really is. There, there are a couple of dimensions to this. One, of course, is, you know, over the years, I myself, every scholar evolves over time. We change as human beings. We change as scholars. and you know, I was trained uh, to, 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 I'm a scholar of texts. I read texts in Arabic and Syriac and Aramaic and, you know, Arabian dialects, Greek. And you, you tend to sort of just mine the sources and interpret them and, you know, uh, reflect what they say in a modern context. And uh, over time, I started to get a little bit jaded. And some of my female colleagues, I have to give 
credit, uh, this sort of, they did, I think, uh, the importance of women, female agency and power did start to uh, influence me. Uh, so I just was, you know, sort of one day doing what scholars do, researching a book, writing a book on holy men in Arabia. And I happened to stumble across what I'd like to call, you know, like their bosses, uh, and many of whom seemed to be women of high standing. And I thought that was fascinating. I thought that was a story that has not been told, and I have to do it. So I, I you know, sort of veered a little bit away from just merely mining the sources, which is just, you know, we'll look at our sources and just say what they say and, you know, go into hyper, you know, granular detail about, is this a biblical reference? Is this a Quranic reference? Is this a rabbinic reference? Um, which is good, but doesn't go far enough. Well, what about, you know, what about, you know, uh, who are the historical actors that are not being mentioned in the sources? And I'll mention one last thing in this regard. So uh, I'm not alone, of course, in doing this. There's been a move, in, I would say, certainly in the past decade, but even past decades, to move away from old-fashioned, you know, royal histories and ecclesiastical histories and world histories, which is reflected in the sources. They're very, very useful. But to move towards more cultural and popular histories and even anthropological and social science uh, in, or histories that are, that are imbued with the social sciences, which, of course, I learned from, uh, which are, of course, more bottom-up. So that's also part of the picture. And I'll cite two examples of that. There's, of course, um, Hani Khafipur and Jack Tanous have recently written, of course, these sort of uh, popular cultural histories on the Middle East. And I'm just, you know, I think I feel like we need to take it a step further now. Well, let's look for the women now. No, and that's a lot of what I'm doing with this podcast as well. It's really kind of finding in the margins of the of other people you read about in history, it's like, oh, wait, but who is that woman that you mentioned that you're pulling a thread? And so you talk about, I think it was also in the introduction of your book, you describe it almost, it's not strictly an academic research process, you describe it as storytelling, partially, right? Yes, so um, absolutely. And I, I, I must say, I also really love the name of your podcast, Vulgar History. <laughs> it's, it's really awesome. But storytelling in this book that I have recently contributed is and it, it gives us as scholars and as you know um, you know historians a way out uh, rather than sort of you know recreating or remaking the sausage over and over again instead of debating you know does arabia crystallize before or after islam what what happens if we actually start telling stories and let the stories guide us so that's something, again, what I describe as, as narrative history. And, uh, you know, if I can combine my specialization as a philologist and borrow tools from storytellers, you know, what do we learn? And one, so by way of example, one small thing that we learn by writing a book in this way or reading it is we learn that storytelling, uh, especially, for example, ecclesiastical histories that were written for the Byzantine or, you know, the Greek-speaking church in late antiquity, or world histories written for the caliph, who then was the most powerful man on, you know, on the planet in Baghdad, right? These histories were written not merely or not fundamentally to serve as truth for us, you know, a thousand years later to just mine. Mm -hmm. they, they are actually written to share stories and build a communal identity. That's what made you Christian, what made you Muslim. So. 
when you start to look at sources that way and you start to um, treat your sources as these entities and texts and partners that build, build identity rather than, you know, arguing about truth and authenticity the whole time, you're able to actually say a lot more and, you know, explore different perspectives and find, you know, uh, 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 the, what I would describe, you know, the female agency and the female power, which I, uh, of course, discuss at length in the book. I was wondering if you could give an example of one of the women who you write about in the book. Oh, yes, of course. So a brief introduction is, of course, the book itself has, you know, roughly maybe two parts of what I describe. I talk about pagan queens, so pre-monotheistic era queens of Arabia. And then I talk, of course, about believer queens. And the the language is a little bit ambiguous uh, on purpose. Uh, so among, of course, the believer queens, uh, there are three who are a really big deal. I talk a little bit about Zenobia, and I talk about Mavia, and I talk about Khadija, or Khadija, the, the wife of Muhammad. So, I mean, I might, I might say something about uh, Zenobia since, since she's the first. Of course, she is uh, you know, described by historians as the most romantic figure of you know, the Roman and Oriental Near East. Uh, at the same time, she's sort of mysterious, and nobody really knows, you know, uh, the historical uh, Zenobia that well. But why is she important? Why did I talk about her? Because she's the Empress of Arabia. Um, uh, She's, you know, she's of Arabian, Syrian, Oriental extraction, something that, of course, we debate. And what I'm I'm bringing to the fore in this book is that she fostered a holy man called Paul of Samosata, who is a bishop, he's an important guy in the church, and that they contributed uh, to the articulation and even the the remnants of alternate doctrine, alternate doctrines within the church. Of course, you know, this is, I make a big deal, of course, here about heresies and the church and how they should be viewed uh, in, in, you know, we should view them more critically rather than just heresies to look at, to look at how um, the dimensions of race, class, and gender play a role. And uh, another thing, of course, is that Zenobia is remembered. Uh, Her legacy is enormous in Roman and Arabian traditions for centuries. Uh, so uh, she's such a big deal. I argue, of course, the employer of this of Paul, and that Paul, you know, has he's accused of adoptionism and other, you know, weird, uh, weird religious practices. But that, you know, it's again, I'm just looking at a node and a long string, and that if we follow along what comes, bef- if we follow what comes before him and what comes after him, it does take you to Christianity in Arabia, it takes you to Islam in Arabia, it takes you to the Quran, to Muhammad. On, and, you know, I guess the, you know, the details of which uh, are found in the book. So hopefully, hopefully your listeners will buy it. Yeah. Well, no, and it's, it's interesting to me because in terms of Zenobia, I've, who's a figure I haven't covered on the podcast yet, but what I mostly have heard about her is she stood up against Rome. She's this warrior figure and you're exploring other facets of what she wasn't just that. Absolutely. And of course, thank you again for introducing that. I mean, she is fundamentally known as, you know, she's the empress who stood against Rome and paid for it with her life. Um, That's still very important in the book. But, uh, you know, we want to go deeper. And if you do go deeper, uh, you know, what can we say? A couple of things, you know, she's described, of course, in the sources as an illustrious queen, uh, as Augusta, uh, which is the highest ranking title you can have. Uh, You know, this is, of course, in the Roman world, as the mother of the king of kings. And that, of course, that title uh, covers the Persian sphere. So, and I argue one thing in the book is that she sees herself as the queen of the earth. Now, sounds kind of uh, grandiose, 
but that's what men said about themselves all the time after yeah. Alexander the Great, right? So, um, and one last thing, of course, is you know within within Arabic and even Islamic tradition, um, she, there is the there are traditions of al zaba. Uh, this is a strange name, z a b b a, with an a doohickey at the end. Uh, this sort of pre-Islamic queen of the Arabs. So they recognize that there's this queen of all Arabia, and that you know this is, it's Zenobia. Um, and that she fights against the leper king of Al-Hira. Al-Hira, of course, is this city-state in Mesopotamia, which became, of course, the, the capital of Christianity prior to Islam. And then you have, of course, the name Zainab. Zainab, of course, is a common name even in, you know, today uh, among Arabs and among Muslims. But we have four Zainabs, two of which are the wives of Muhammad and two of which are you know, his progeny, his daughter and his, his granddaughter. And again, those are echoes of, of Zenobia. So she's, she really is a big deal. And uh, she's been written out of history as much as she's been recalled. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. And we're back. No, so I really appreciate it that you were expanding upon, and I guess your ability to read all these different languages and to look at the different sources combined with the approach you're taking of the storytelling really helped to put together, even just saying 
that, that this is what people had and it was spelled differently like to put that together like well they mean her you know so then being able to add well here's what other people are saying about her yeah uh thanks for the, bringing that up because you know it's important for us uh as scholars and as historians as philologists as as critics as social scientists to have imagination to think and have thoughts and to dig deep and we do dig deep but i think there's sometimes uh, an emphasis on um, not going far enough. And I think that there is a need for us, there's a need for imagination, especially if you're looking for, to write a sort of a cultural history, to, to tell stories about marginalized, uh, about today marginalized populations, uh, um, then you need to actually use imagination and you need to actually uh, go a little, you take the, take the data as far as you can. Um, and I think, again, it's not, it's not that hard to do. We just have to, you know, want to do it. It's just so fascinating to me because what you're looking at is such ancient text. You know, so a lot of the research I've been doing has been, I don't know, 1600s, 1800s, where you have stuff is written in English. I'm able to, there's a lot of points of view, but you're looking at what pieces of paper remain from that period of time. And you have to piece it together almost um, where you really need to bring the imagination to just turn that into a story if all you have is one scrap of, I don't know, papyrus or something. Absolutely. And to go back again to, to connect what we just said, you know, to the, the both points, this one and the one earlier, scholars do use imagination whether they admit it or not. Because when you're looking at, you know, uh, epigraphic evidence from Arabia, like, you know, scribbles on rocks, most of which are funerary, you know, this is the, this is this funerary site of so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so, Whoever touches it is cursed by the god so-and-so. You know, it's like a formula. Um, when you look at thousands of these um, and you start piecing them together, um, you have to use imagination as well to, to make those connections. Uh, or, of course, when you're looking at literary evidence, when you're looking at books, some of the stuff that you're mentioning just now, whether those books are written in Arabic and come from the 8th or 9th century or, uh, you know, Syriac Christian or rabbinic Aramaic sources from, from earlier, you know, third, fourth, fifth century, uh, or Greek sources prior to that. It's, it's, uh, to connect all of them. First of all, it's a, it's a ton of work, right? Mm -hmm. It takes, yeah. it takes, it takes a lot of training and, 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 and toil, but it takes imagination. And I don't think that it's wrong to actually, uh, you know, articulate that. And, you know, I think that that's something I, I, I've sort of put forth in the book, uh, boldly and hopefully, uh, hopefully it works. Well, and you said, Again, I, I promise I read the whole book. I keep mentioning things from the introduction. But um, it's you really set up everything in there. And one of the things you mentioned was that some of your colleagues challenged you in this concept or thinking like you were doing some sort of Arabic version of the Da Vinci Code or something. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, writing this book has been exceptionally difficult. I have to say that you know uh, up to up till writing this book, I've been I've been spoiled as a scholar. I've I've had a, I've enjoyed my privilege as as a man, as as an Arab and Muslim American, as a you know a scholar of the Middle East. I've just enjoyed that you know I write my scholarship, I send it for peer review, I get constructive feedback, and it's published. This is the first time I have gotten so many rejections. Uh, it has been flabbergasting. Part of it was, of course, you know you get feedback, and it's they've all helped me. But there's something amiss, you know, I, it gave me pause. I'm like, why is everyone so, you know, antagonistic? And why is there so much animosity to what I'm writing? Um, so I think that there is something to be said about, you know, just 
you know, uh, existing power structures and scholarly bias, and we're all human being at the end. So it took extra work to articulate my ideas, and I think that it is a better work. Thank, I'm thankful to, again, my detractors and my supporters alike. I had to be extra rigorous. I had to go, you know, do my due diligence. And it, I know still the book as it stands now, uh, some folks will be very happy about it. Other folks won't be convinced. But there's one point I wanted to mention, of course, which we all have to sort of uh, admit or acknowledge is, you know, pre-Islamic Arabia is a very mysterious place. And it's, there are no books in pre-Islamic Arabia. The first book is the Quran, which of course is this masterpiece of Arabic language and religion. And it's like, what is going, how did this happen? Right? So, uh, so that is, that is a problem for anyone who wants to write about pre-Islamic Arabia is you don't have sources. So you have to be extra creative and go really wide and look at neighboring civilizations. And now we have, of course, more epigraphic sources and more the you know, Syriac Christian sources are being, uh, you know, extrapolated and interpreted. So it makes things a little bit easier. We're, we're getting there. And I think that, uh, I hope that this book changes some opinions and changes how some, honestly, how some scholars behave. Well, because you're looking at historically, um, like I'm going to say nearly every historical society is a patriarchal society. Like the instances of women being powerful are so rare that, you know, they stand out. So to be, is that part of the challenge is looking at these structures that have been accepted as patriarchal societies and saying, well, actually, here's the influential women who were there. Is that part of what the, the pushback was? Um, so that's definitely part of it. And um, I'm also sort of ruminating on your question, but I'll, I'll, I'll add that this book builds, of course, on numerous colleagues who happen to be female and also writing about Arab women. So among them, of course, is Leila Ahmed, last name A-H-M-E-D, who is, uh, you know, a, a towering figure in Islamic uh, gender studies. She acknowledges, you know, she, she is... She acknowledges a point that you made, which is all sort of society is patriarchal. It's like, oh, you know, what, what could all the men on the earth agree upon, that, you know, that they're in charge? At the same time, she's acknowledging that, especially in pre-Islamic Arabia, you had these uh, communities and instances where you have matrilineality and pockets of matriarchal, you know, customs. And uh, those, of course, if we ever get a chance to discuss it now or maybe even later, I discuss in future research. It's already written and I'm working on it now. But um, so it's, 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 as you know, scholars understand that nuance is, is king, right? It's so important because history is never linear, one, two, three, four, five. And what, what ends up happening, especially in pre-Islamic Arabia, is you have patriarchy and matriarchy. You have men in charge and women in charge. And that's not conceptually easy to understand or communicate. So we get lazy and say, okay, well, this is the one narrative we're going to stick to the whole time. Mm -hmm. The reality is um, you have large uh, or widespread, long-lasting patriarchal structures. I discussed them, of course, in the final chapter, um, but nestled between them, among them, before them, and after them, almost in perpetuity, are uh, matriarchal structures and uh, polities that, you know, where you have queen regents and, and women and again, the, the, the importance, again, of priestess and goddess, they get lost in these, you know, uh, our typical notions of, you know, what is power? Well, power is a king or it's a president. Well, what about the priestess? What about the priest? So there, so we have to do both 
the nuance of acknowledging that there's there you have men in charge and women in charge, and that you also have to look at different categories of power. Um, and by you know sort of walking and chewing gum, hopefully you know this this works out and and it tells us a new story about pre-Islamic Arabia. Well, and something that I come across in my research as well is, especially when you're going really far back, if there's not a a contemporaneous account, then you're reading what somebody 500 years later thought, and they're bringing their point of view from 500 years later, or a thousand years later, 2000 years later. So trying to break down, well, this person thinks this, but that's because this is what was happening in his world. But 500 years ago, is that what was really happening? So it's just trying to um, take away the bias of people reporting far after the fact, what actually happened at the time. Yes, great point because this this of course is the uh, is the other problem. Of course, so we mentioned of course that there are no, there are no good sources or no uh, immediate sources for pre-Islamic Arabia. They're slowly coming out, but still it won't be anything not too verbose in, in its in its content. So what do we have? We have in fact literary sources which come centuries after the fact. Mm-hmm. So you know we have lots of texts and stories you know and histories about pre-Islamic Arabia and men and women that come two, three, four, five, six hundred years after the fact. And, you know, they tend to fall into these tropes and topoi, sort of biblical and Roman way of looking at the world where men in, are in charge. And, and you know, it sort of tells, tells the story of Arabia in those terms. So you have two challenges. One, you have to try and extrapolate or dig out the nuggets of truth or the kernels of truth Sometimes, and again, there's a lot of debate about that. Sometimes there's none, sometimes there's some. The second thing you have to do is read against the text because the content itself. So, if you're, I don't know, Sazaman of Gaza, uh, writing your ecclesiastical history and you're talking about these Arabs, the, these Arabs in Palestine and Sinai and North Arabia, and you're saying that they worship in this way and that they're, you know, that they're sort of, they're worshiping abominations or something of that nature. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Because he's a churchman and he wants to promote Christianity in his day, so you have to read against it. Oh well, that they they were they were you know the majority of the population were another religion, and this is what they were worshiping, and there was this intrusion of you know Christianity into the picture. So anyway, um, that there are a number of challenges, but if we as scholars do the work, it is not impossible. This is going to be possibly a very big question, which is maybe not the best choice. Is like let's wrap it up with this question. But you touched on this a bit in the book, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are today about the connection between this book um, and the women you discuss um, and the societies and cultures you discuss and today, um, current situations for women, especially in that region of the world. Yeah. So, yeah, that is a big question. So, I know. <laughs> and, uh, I, will, I will preface by saying a couple of things. One, of course, is I am, I am ultimately you know, a, a man, a humble man in this world who's trying to, to learn from his colleagues, both female and male. And um, I've learned a lot writing this book, not just researching it, and even getting feedback from, from my colleagues and my students and my friends and family. A couple of things I think if we can learn, you know, what are the lessons maybe of, of this book as far as the contemporary world? There are a few. So one, of course, is it realigns our assumptions about what monarchy is. So if, you know, if, if you Google the word queen, right, um, or king, you know, you might get the Queen of England, who left us not too long ago, right? May she rest in peace. Um, why is that the case? 
when we, you know, when we think about monarchy or queenship, that we think of, you know, we think about the English royal family. Uh, why, when we think of, for example, it also realigns our assumptions when we think about God or divinity or about power. Away from, I would say, European models or Eurocentric models, I just gave one quick example, to uh, older, older examples that come from Arabia and I would even say the ancient Near East. Um, so, you know, by way of example, there's a long tradition. Um, it's not as well attested, but of, of queenship in Qatar and the UAE and the Arabian Peninsula. Those are, of course, very new states that were, you know, founded just decades ago. But uh, they are heir to this tradition that I've been, you know, writing about. So that's one. Another one would be how we think about religion and politics today. So, for example, here, here in America, I would say, at least in the United States, I don't know about Canada, but, you know, the emphasis on God and country is first and foremost shaped by gender, race, and class. And it sounds maybe kind of, you know, quaint for me to say that, but I mean, it's fundamentally shaped by men saying, this is how things are. And there's nothing wrong with that if you just, if you know that that's what's happening, but we don't know that's what's happening. Um, so again, it, it challenges our assumptions. It, it forces us in, you know, out of our comfort zone when we think about religion and politics that this is how men have told us things are. And we've had to write out, you know, you know women and minorities, whatever that means, and poor people and in order for us to privilege ourselves and see ourselves as God and presidents and so on and so forth. So that's the second thing. Another one would be um, modern women are not the first to enjoy freedom. And, and the burden of independence. And I say that both because being free can suck sometimes, right? And not just out here celebrating for no reason, whether you're a man or woman. But women today are not the first to do that. Um, so whether we talk about women in, you know, the Western world or the Arab and Islamic world, you know, the human beings today are educated and literate at record rates. Um, that, of course, is, is uh, new to history. But it's not new that women exercised agency and were heads of state and were the wealthiest women in the entire city. That's happened before. And it's actually kind of shocking when we read, when we read about pre-Islamic Arabia, and this is in the book, of course, just how independent, how free, how wealthy, how powerful these women were. It's, uh, and of course, that challenges our assumptions. And one last point to try and wrap up this really big question is, I mentioned, of course, the Iraqi-American activist Zainab Salbi at the end of my book. And she talks about, you know, women, women are the ones who are there at the end. And if I can quote her for a second, it says life, sorry, like life, peace begins with women. Uh, we're the first to forge lines of alliance and collaboration across conflict zones. I say that because we're in a world where war is just the natural state of things. Why is that? Why, why is that the case? Um, it wouldn't hurt to, uh, I think, put women in actual and original places of power. And I, and I mean that, uh, you know, to, to challenge the idea that, you know, women CEOs is a marker for something. I said, I think that's a little bit different, but to, um, when we look at the example of Mavia that, you know, she, she did things on her own terms. She antagonized the Roman emperor, the, you know, the bishops, she did everything her way that we need a little bit more of that in our world today. And not, a, not a sort of rebellious childishness, but I mean, at the very, very top, I mean, our world, I think, uh, needs it. That just connects to something else. I just remembered I wanted to bring up with you. The, on the dedication page, I just love this. The, it's a poem or a quote about chess is a game of life. 
Yeah. I don't know if you have it in front of you, but I can, I do, so I can read it. Um, just on your dedication page, it says, Chess is a game of life. The queen is the most powerful piece on the board. Respect the queen. Win the game. I it, I have it in front of me because I just took a screenshot and saved it because I was like, that's so beautiful. You know, I, I, I always get emotional when I think about that dedication because, of course, I dedicated it to my kids. And my kids, I have three boys. They're all, they're all young men. And, um, you know, the quote itself is, is sort of a, an adaptation of a very famous quote uh, from a chess player. And my kids all grew up playing chess. And they still do. Um, and I want them to grow into the men that I would want them to be. And I want them to be better than me. And in order to do that, you have to respect uh, you have to respect the queen on the board. Mm-hmm. It was, it just really took my breath away when I just first opened your book. I was like, oh, that's, I took a screenshot of it. I think I saved on it. I put it on Instagram or something. I'm just like, this is so beautiful. And it really speaks to, um, to, I don't know, clearly your personal philosophy that really is shown throughout the book that you've written. Thank you. I mean, uh, I, I, I myself, I mean, that's, that's the, that's my favorite passage in the whole book is actually the yeah. dedication. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Yeah. No, it's honestly saved on my phone right now. Um, if people want to keep up with you, do you have social media or a website or anything where people can, can follow you and see what you're up to? Uh, yes. Uh, so all of the above, uh, of course you, you can Google my name and I'm sorry to say it that way. It sounds sort of uh, shame, shameless publicity, but you could do that. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, although I limit, of course, my, you know, the friends I accept, but uh, Twitter is where I am most active. And, um, you know, I'm also, I also have an academia.edu page where I uh, share, uh, samples or whole parts of my research. No, that's so good. And I can put links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining me to talk about this this really good book. Thank you so much, Annabelle, for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, you are now, I hope, a, a part of this story, and uh, I'm indebted. So again, the book we were talking about is Queens and Prophets, How Arabian Noble Women and Holy Men Shaped Paganism, Christianity, and Islam, which is out now by Emran al-Badawi. I'll put all of his links for his social media and things in the show notes so you can follow him and see what he's up to because his new stuff he's working on also sounds really interesting. And if you want to keep up with me and this show, so we are on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, um, on TikTok at Vulgar History. If you want to reach out to me for any reason, um, there's a form at vulgarhistory.com or you can email vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast slash me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Writer. So if you pledge at least $1 a month, you'll get early ad-free access to all of our new episodes. Um, if you pledge $5 a month, you get access to bonus episodes of Vulgar Peace Theater, where I talk about costume dramas with friends of the podcast, Alison Epstein and Lana Witt Johnson, um, and also episodes of So This Asshole, where I talk about awful men from history. And you can shop for Vulgar History merchandise at vulgarhistory.store, where you can always use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.